So buy some salsa so those cute kids can head to camp this summer. About, gosh, it was probably over 10 years ago, there was this TV show that uh, got really popular for just a little while. Um, and it was a reality TV show. And it followed women like leading up to their wedding day and on their wedding day. And the TV show was called Bridezillas. Did anyone in here ever watch that show, Bridezillas? I didn't like watch it regularly, because that would be uncool. <laughs> but I saw it a couple times. I mean, the whole idea behind a Bridezilla is that here's this, this woman, this young girl, who is normally pretty normal. But something about the wedding just sets them off and turns them into a monster. And here's, here's what happens uh, to a bridezilla is they start stressing out about the wedding. Luckily, you know, I married Sarah and she's perfect and I, I, don't, I didn't have to worry about this at all at our wedding. Um, but it can be a little stressful to plan a wedding and, and to get all the things right. And what happens with a bridezilla is they begin to focus on the details. Like every little thing has to be just so, it has to be just right. The flowers have to look perfect, the table decorations have to look perfect, her dress has to look perfect, her hair, her makeup has to look perfect. The, you know, everyone's gotta be standing in the right spots. The, uh, the photos have to be exactly what she wanted. And, and what ends up happening is she gets so obsessed, so focused on the peripheral stuff of the wedding that really she forgets what the whole point of the wedding is. The whole point of the wedding is the marriage, right? The whole, I mean, if you have a wedding with no marriage, you essentially just had a party. Uh, you just hung out with some people and had a good time. But, but really, it's not a wedding unless there's a marriage. And I think that we can tend to have a little bridezilla syndrome uh, in the church, where we begin to focus on the details and we lose sight of the main thing. We, we, we miss the forest for the trees, maybe. Um, and, and so this morning, what I want to do is, is I want us to not lose sight of the, of the marriage in the wedding, okay? I, I, I don't want us to do this with, with, with Jesus. I don't want us to do this with our faith because that's what religion is. Religion is following rules, checking boxes, making sure that um, you know, all the details are perfect. But, but what we're doing here in this church is not religion. This is a relationship with Jesus, and, and it looks totally different. And so we're starting a new series today called uh, Live Love, and we're going to be taking a look. There it is, Live Love. We're going to be taking a look at 1 John I think there's this temptation to just jump in and kind of start rattling off ways that we can just be better at loving others. Like, how can we just love better? How can we just love more? Right? Because the truth is, most of us in here probably aren't checking all the boxes perfectly. Like, man, we ought to be loving our, our, our spouses more and our kids more and our neighbors more and and, and our friends more, and our enemies more, and we ought to be loving God more. And all those things are really important. But I think if we were to just jump in straight there, 
we might be missing the main point. Though they're very important, we might be missing the marriage part of the wedding. Um, and you might say, wait, I thought like loving God and loving others, that's, that's the, the great commandment. I mean, that, that's li- when they asked Jesus, if you could boil it all down, what is it? He says, love others, love God. That's what it all comes down to. But I want us to realize that there's more to it than just that. There's more to this book than just us loving others and us loving God. And that's actually not even really the main thing. Um, So we're going to pick up in 1 John. Uh, We're going to go straight to chapter 4. We're going to bounce around in 1 John during this. Um, We're going to go to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 10. And John is written by uh, the author of the Gospel, John. He wrote John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. Um, And he's trying to get across a really important point here to the people. And he says this. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And that he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And then later on in verse 19, I think he kind of sums it up when he says this. We love because he first loved us. See, I think John really gets it. He really understands it. In, in, in his gospel that he writes, when he refers to himself, he doesn't refer to himself as John, or he doesn't refer to himself as me. He doesn't refer to himself as, as the guy that like, loved Jesus a lot or, or the guy that did a lot of good things. The name that he gives himself in his gospel is the one whom Jesus loved. And I think... It's because he understands where the source is. That, that really, where the power comes from. And, and here's where, what I really want us to grab onto today. Is this truth. Loved people love people. It's loved people who love people. That God is the very source for the love that we are going to give. And so... As we do all these things throughout the city over this month, as we go and we live love, what we need to remember is that if we're going to actually live love, we need to live loved. We need to understand God's love for us. Because when we accept and see and, and, and root our lives in Jesus' love for us, it's then and only then that we truly love others. Um, Paul, in Ephesians, kind of communicates the same message when he says this in Ephesians 3. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long And how high and how deep is the love of Christ? And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, 
that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. See, what, what Paul wanted for the Ephesians is really what I am hoping for us today, that we can begin to grasp how high and how deep and how long and how wide the love of Christ is. And he even says it that admits that it's, it's beyond human comprehension. We'll never reach the full height. We'll never reach the full depth. We'll never reach the full outer expanses of God's love for us. But, but there needs to be really this Holy Spirit power that comes upon us in order for us to even begin to comprehend what it's like. In verse 17, I think he kind of uh, gets at how, how we're going to begin. And he says this in verse 17. He says, being rooted and established in love. If we are rooted and established in love, then maybe we'll start to understand. It's this idea of like digging your roots into this soil that's just deep and good and that will, the, the roots will never get uh, to the edge. There's this foundation of Christ's love for us. And I think uh, what we need to do here this morning, before we go into this whole series about living love, about going out and loving, uh, we need to just gaze upon Christ's love for us. We need to take a look at the depth of his love for us. And I think there's really four things, four ways uh, in which the depth of Jesus' love, the depth of God's love for you and I is revealed. There's four ways. And I think the first way that it's revealed is in its costliness. The depth of Christ's love is revealed in its costliness. Um, The depth of someone's love is proportional to what it costs them to love you. And here's, here's what I mean by that. If, if Luke over there was to show up at my house one day and give me a couple T-shirts, his old T-shirts, I would think, wow, that's, that's awesome. That's so nice. Like, Luke loves me. I mean, I'm not going to fit in these because I'm a little bigger, but <laughs> like, like, he loves me. Like, that, that's nice of him. But if we're walking down the street one day and someone pulls a gun on us and he, he steps in front of me and takes a bullet, how much more is the depth of that love, right? Because it costs him so much. I mean, to give away a few shirts eh, doesn't cost that much. It probably costs more to drive down there in the time that it would take. But, <laughs> but, but to, to give up your life... The cost is so high. Uh, there's, I would give a shirt to any of you. You can ask me after. But not all of you. I wouldn't have much left. But um, would I die for everyone? I, you know, I'd give a shirt to a random guy on, a, on the street, but would I die for him? The, the depth of... Christ's love is shown in the fact that he would, he would lay down his life for us. Chuck Colson uh, tells this story of 
these American prisoners during World War II. You might have heard the story, maybe not. Uh, but there's these 20 American soldiers during World War II that are captured and they're taken to this work camp to work. And um, while they're there, basically what they're doing every day is they're digging holes. So they wake up in the morning and they dig a bunch of holes. They come back, they go to bed, they wake up in the morning, they fill those holes in, dig some more holes. It's really just like breaking their spirit. That's, that's the goal of digging holes um, at a work camp like this. And um, one day, they come back from working all day digging holes, and the guards come in, and they count the shovels, and there's only 19 shovels. There's supposed to be 20, and there's only 19. And one of the guards steps forward and says, okay, who forgot their shovel? If, if one of you doesn't step forward in the next five seconds, I'm going to shoot five of you. And so a few seconds go by, and as he's reaching for his gun, this 19-year-old soldier named Ben steps forward. And he says, it was me. And the guard takes him aside, and he puts a bullet in his head. And the, the other men are just weeping. The guards leave. The soldiers go over, and they, they count the, the shovel, and, and there's 20. There's 20 shovels. The, the guard had just miscounted. And Ben stepped out of line, knowing he had brought his shovel back, and said, I forgot. In that moment, he loved those other men so deeply because it cost him so much. I mean, in that moment, he, he had to consider, I will never see my family again. I will, I will never see my home again. I will... I'll, I'll never have a family of my own. I'll never, I'll never fish again. I'll, I'll never do all the things I love again. But I love these men so much. And the, and the depth of his love for them is shown in the sacrifice. And God, God's, Jesus' sacrifice for us is even greater than that. That the God of the universe would die a, a criminal's death for you and me. That is some deep love. That's, that's costly love. Um, so the second way that we can look at the depth of Christ's love for us is in its object's inability to earn or repay it. Its object's inability to earn or repay it. This is kind of confusing. So I'm going to explain that for a little bit. Um, we had our son Judah almost a year ago. And I think maybe this, this concept is, is best described by kids. I think it's, it's understood by parents who have kids. Um, I remember being in that hospital room. I had just seen some pretty crazy things, pretty wild things. <laughs> things I, probably, I thought I never would see. Um, and I had just cut the umbilical cord. It took me two tries, but I got it. And they put him on Sarah's chest, and I looked into his eyes, and like I had this allergy attack, and the tears <laughs> just started flowing. Like I, I, there was this moment where I looked into his eyes, and I thought, 
I would die a thousand times over to protect this, this little thing. I mean, he had, he had literally done nothing for me. Nothing, I mean, if anything, he cost me a lot of money at this point. <laughs> and um, I mean, he hadn't even looked at me at this point. It's not, we're not even making eye contact. I look at this baby, the tears start flowing, and I realize I love this, this child so much, so much. And, and he's done nothing to deserve it. That's, that's God's love for us. The Bible says in Romans that while we were still enemies of God, he died for us. So not only did we do nothing to earn God's love, and knowing we could never repay it, we, we did the opposite. We earned the opposite of God's love is what we've earned. Yet, he still died for us. You know, you might die for a good person, but for your enemy? So, another way to say this is, you might love someone who has taken care of you your whole life, who has been kind to you, who has uh, given you so much. To, to give to them would be easy. But, but to someone who has treated you poorly, man, to love them, that love must be deeper. That, that's got to be... That, that, that's a costlier love. It's a, if they don't have it, the ability to pay you back for the love that you give, that's, that's a purer love. And here's what I think is, uh, I want you right now to picture, what do you picture when, when you picture God's face looking at you? I, th- I think for me, most of the time, what I picture is like, what? <laughs> that's, that's kind of the face that I picture God looking at. I, for some reason, in my head, I picture God looking at me like, dude, come on. <laughs> like, man. And the truth is, I think the reason I do that is because I think that God is, is, loves some future version of me. That he doesn't love me now as I am with all the brokenness and the stuff that I do wrong and, and the weakness and the self-centeredness that's in me. No, no, no. He probably just loves some future version of me, and that's not true. God doesn't love me for, for what I might repay him someday, which I could never repay him for what he's done for me, but, but he doesn't love me for the, the man I might become. He loves me as I am today in all my sin. And Jared's going to talk about the next few weeks, how he loves us too much to leave us that way. But, but he loves you as you are today. And it shows the depth of his love. The third thing I think that puts on display, that reveals Christ's love, the depth of it is its extravagant benefits to us. Right? If, if someone were to help us pass a test in school, Right? We might think, feel some kind of love for them. Um, if someone were to help us get a job, maybe we'd feel, feel like a little more love for that person because they, they, they gave us this gift, this job. But if someone were to help us escape from slavery into freedom, 
how much, how much greater would, our, would that love be? How much greater would we feel towards that person? And now, I want you to imagine, what if, what if someone rescued from an, you from eternal punishment and instead gave you the gift of eternal life? How full, how, how great is that love because of, its, because of its huge benefits to the one who receives it? It's a depth of love that surpasses anything. The fourth way that we can gaze at Christ's love, the depth of it, is in its freedom. So we know the depth of someone's love for us in, in the freedom in which they give it. Um, it. It's proportional to the liberty in which it's given. And I'll say it like this. If you had kids, two kids, who's got two kids or more in here? OK, good amount. Have they ever fought? No? No one? OK. Well, imagine you have two kids that fight. And um, I don't know if you, you've ever seen this. I only have one kid, so I've never had the opportunity to do this, but I'm looking forward to the day. But there's, there's what happens is they, they come running to the parents, like, he hit me, and oh, she said mean things, and she hit me first. And, you know, they're just bickering back and forth. They're complaining to you. And I love the parents who are like, you say you're sorry. You, say, you hug each other, love each other. Like, you know, when you tell them, like, you got to hug each other and say you're sorry. And so they do that, like, like I hate you hug. I don't know if you've <laughs> seen the I hate you hug. Um, but how much less is that love than the love of, of, a, of a father coming home and the child running into his arms freely to give him a hug? It's so much greater because it's freely given. It's a choice. When you force a child to hug his brother, you know, there's not a lot of love there. Maybe in the future when they, they do get along and, and hug each other out of, out of pure love for one another, you know, it kind of warms your heart. But the freedom of which in which someone gives love, tells us of its depth. And when Jesus went to the cross for us, for you and me, he did so willingly. The, the God of the universe could have easily at any point, it, you know, sometimes I think we, we look at the cross and we think like, oh, poor Jesus. Look at what he, he went through. And the truth is, God at any point could have called down the army of angels. The Bible says he, he could have called down legions of angels. He, he could have been swept away in an instant. He did not have to do this for you and me. He did not have to love us in this way. But he chose to love us in this way. He chose to show his love for us. And because he chose it, it's a deeper love. It's a, it's a, it's a pure love. And, it, and I want us to gaze upon it. Um, about 750 years 
before Jesus shows up. There's a prophet named Hosea. Um, he lives in the, the northern territory of Israel. And what are prophets of God supposed to do? Their, their job is to communicate God's message to God's people. That's what they do. And a lot of God's prophets get odd assignments at times. You know, Elijah got some cra crazy assignments, some crazy things to do. Um, Isaiah, for sure. But I think Hosea might get one of the strangest, toughest assignments. God tells Hosea, look, I want you to marry a prostitute. Like, what? I'm sure that Hosea is thinking, wait, I must, I, did I miss here something? Like, there's no way, why is God telling me to marry a prostitute? There's not really a whole lot of backstory. Back there's not a whole lot of explanation to Hosea, but he thinks, well, if this is what God is calling me to do, I'm going to go do it. He follows through. He marries a prostitute named Gomer, which, bummer of a name. <laughs> You're not going to find that in the top 100 girl names. Um, but things go pretty well for a little while. Hosea and Gomer, they have three kids, two boys and a girl. And it seems like things are going all right. And then one day, Hosea wakes up and Gomer is gone. She's nowhere to be found. He searches high and low and, and she has left him. She has gone to be with other men. And this Hosea is a man of God. He's the literal prophet of God. He is a man of God. And he's supposed to be the hope of God for his people. He's communicating God's message to his people. And he can't even keep his family together. He's probably embarrassed. He's probably brokenhearted. He's probably angry. He's probably wondering, what was God thinking? I don't get it. And now he's a single father, totally ashamed. I mean, he's well known. Israel knows who Hosea is. They know that he's a big deal. They know that he's a godly man, and his wife left him to be with other men. Eey. Doesn't look good. But some time goes by, and God eventually comes to Hosea and says, I want you to go find her. I want you to marry her again. Uh, again? I, I'm sure Jose is thinking like, oh, come on. Like, like twice. I'm going to do this twice now. This is crazy. But he does. He, he goes looking for her. And the place that he has to go looking for her is, is a place that the godly men don't go. He has to go really looking for her down in the red light district. And he finds her. And when he finds her, she's on the selling block. She's, she's in the sex slave industry. She's being sold. And the fact that she was his, she was his wife, it doesn't, doesn't mean anything at this point. And so Hosea decides, I'll buy her. I'll pay whatever price to get her back. And I think, wait a second, Hosea. 
She's already yours. You, that's your wife. You married her. She's already yours. And he says, no, I know that. But I'm going to purchase what's already mine. I'm, I'm going to buy the thing that I already own. And here's the deal. The Bible says that the world and everything in it is the unique property of God, that God owns it all. And yet... On the cross, he says, I'm going to purchase that which is already mine. See, Hosea is putting on display the greatest love the world will ever know 750 years before it even happens. God decides that he is going to purchase the thing he already owns. You see, you and I are Gomer. We've run away. We've cheapened ourselves. We've been unfaithful. We've offended God. We've hurt God. We've, in our sin, we, we have turned our backs from him. And yet, he comes after us. Yet, he says, I'll purchase back what I already own, and I'll pay whatever price. And the price he paid was the ultimate price, his very life. That's why in 1 John, he says, look, that's what love is. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. That's what real love looks like. That he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, the series that we're going through is called Live Love. But the truth is that we cannot live love uh, until we live loved until we understand the depth of God's love for us. And we need to spend time just with the Lord, gazing upon the craziness of his love for us. It doesn't make sense. It, it, he shouldn't have done it. He's God. We're just the created things. You wouldn't die for, for the things that you've created the king doesn't die for the servants. The servants die for the king. But he flips it around. You see, the band's going to come back up and, and play one last song. Um, there's this old hymn that I've always loved. They're not going to play it. Because um, <laughs> I, I didn't ask them to. They sure they would have. Uh, it's called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And the, the hymn says, how vast is it? It's beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure, to make a Hosea his bride, to make you and I his family. It's the deepest love. It's the widest love. It's the tallest love that we'll ever know. And when we gaze upon it, when we, when we spend our time staring at it, it ignites something in us. And like John says, it, it allows us to then live that love out. When we, when we truly live loved, we can't help but live love. Loved people love people. They just can't help it. So that's what, that's what I want to pray for us today, this morning. Lord,
We thank you for the way that you have loved us. And though loving others is so important, loving our neighbors is important, loving you is so important, I never want to lose sight of the main thing. And the main thing is how you have loved me. You have loved the people in this room with a costly love that we could never repay, that brought us more than we could ever imagine. Lord, we thank you that we could never over-exaggerate your love for us. That it's beyond what our imaginations could think. It's, it's, it's too big for our simple minds. Thank you that though we run, though we sell ourselves off, though we turn to things that are less you still pursue us, you still come after us, that you purchase that which was already yours. But I pray that you would move this love from our head down into our hearts, that we would not just know about your love, that we would know your love deep in us. That would be transforming, that would be the very source of life and love for us. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. As we go to communion, Lord, Lord, I pray that we remember that's why that's why we take communion. Not because we loved you, but because you loved us. that you poured your blood out in, in the wine. You, you broke your body on the cross for us. And we proclaim that truth until you return again one day. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.